Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to our Vita podcast, where we're going to help educate military veterans and their spouses on opportunities in Web3. Our plan is to host a series of industry leaders, many of whom are veterans or spouses themselves, so we can learn about their journey down the crypto rabbit hole while understanding opportunities for transitioning veterans into space. My name is Chris Perkins. I'm a combat Marine veteran who spent 15 years on Wall Street before transitioning into crypto myself. And before we begin, I wanted to thank our sponsor, Luca, who have dedicated their time and resources to make this podcast possible. Today, for episode 15, we'll be speaking with CFTC Commissioner Caroline Pham. Welcome, Commissioner. Hi, Chris. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so this is a super special uh, episode for us. It's our Veterans Day special. We know you've been traveling like crazy. We really appreciate you coming on. You know, it's so important to me. I've supported veterans all my life since my parents were rescued by Marines from the Vietnam War. And of course, because, uh, you know, I actually even briefly did Army ROTC. So this is something really close to my heart. Awesome. Um, Well, before we begin, it was a crazy day in crypto land. Uh, We saw, uh, dare I say, a ton of drama between FTX and Binance, and it ended up with Binance uh, looking as though they bailed out um, FTX through um, by coming in and potentially um, acquiring FTX.com. Um, as a commissioner, you know, what goes through your mind and how do you start thinking about things when you see this kind of crazy, you know, market volatility? How do you, how do you, what, what happens? Yeah. So although the CFTC doesn't oversee these kinds of spot crypto markets right now, except from an anti-fraud and anti-manipulation perspective, you know, always we are thinking about the health of the market, right? Do we have a healthy and well-functioning market Is it resilient? Uh, Is market integrity holding up or are we seeing maybe something artificial uh, that's impacting the market and creating this kind of volatility? So that's something that you always want to be on the lookout for as to whether or not these are sort of uh, natural market forces or if there's some, you know, bad actor uh, taking advantage, you know, potential uh, you know, fraud, manipulation, abuse going on. So it's really just making sure that we're monitoring the state of the markets and again, ensuring market integrity. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. So again, you mentioned your unique background uh, and, and your family's experience in, in Vietnam. You know, I, I was so touched uh, when I watched you uh, during uh, your Senate confirmation hearings really talking about that. Um, look, our, our podcast is designed to help transitioning veterans find employment in Web3 and, and, and unpack the opportunities there. But would love for you to start by talking a little bit more about your family history and, and your affinity for the U.S. and, and, and the U.S. Marine Corps. Yeah, of course. So, you know, my parents uh, came to the United States in 1975, and they have such a crazy story, which, you know, I actually only really found out all of the different pieces recently when I was getting ready for my testimony, because I think it was such a hard experience um, that it was something difficult for them to talk about for, for a long time. But so my parents were young. They were in their 20s. They were, you know, just married, uh, expecting a baby. And my dad was a doctor in the South Vietnamese Army, and he was actually a captain and in charge of his military ward. And so he didn't want to desert his post. He wouldn't leave his post and his patients. But on the last day of the Vietnam War, when they heard that the Americans were going to be leaving, and so they were actually very fortunate in being able to uh, be airlifted by helicopter from the roof of the U.S. Embassy, and that was the Marines, And it was just an incredible story for them. And then they were brought to a U.S. Navy carrier where they were on deck with, I think, like 3,000 other refugees for a whole week. Uh, They were taken to 
Wake Island. Um, you know, my dad volunteered uh, with medical corps there. And then they finally uh, were taken by the U.S. Air Force and evacuated to Camp Pendleton, uh, which is another Marine camp. And that was in San Diego. Their journey didn't stop there. They actually went all across the United States as they tried to, you know, my father tried to get his medical uh, license and training in the United States so he could be certified to practice here. Um, they had my older brother. Uh, they were in uh, North Dakota, in Michigan, in New Jersey, in California. And then they finally settled in Modesto, California, which is where I was born. Wow. What a story. Um, and just an incredible story of, of, of patriotism and, and sacrifice. And um, it's so awesome to, to meet them a while back. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Uh, so can you walk us through your career? How does one become a CFTC commissioner? So I always feel that the best jobs come looking for you. Uh, you don't necessarily go looking for them. And so I just feel lucky that I've ended up in this place. I think maybe I'll tell you a little bit more about, about me and, and my growing up and kind of how I ended up on this path. So, you know, when I was growing up, my dad, of course, um, having served uh, with us, having many service members in our family and just really upholding these values of, of you know, God, duty, country, and service. So my dad always really made sure that that was ingrained in all of us. And uh, to be honest, when I was little, I used to read Tom Clancy books and want to be Jack Ryan. I actually wanted to join uh, the CIA, wanted to be a Marine and do all of that. So, you know, after 9-11, uh, I was at UCLA and I wanted to go and you know, see if there was some way that I could give back. And I actually walked by the ROTC wing and went over there and sort of was asking, uh, you know, where's where's the Navy? Because, of course, uh, you have to go to Navy ROTC if you want to be in the Marines. And it was really funny because this Army major said, well, young lady, those guys are out to lunch. Why don't you step into my office? And so the next thing I know is I'm waking up the next morning at, and showing up at you know 6 a.m., to get kitted out and to go on an, an FTX on a field training exercise. Um, and so I did Army ROTC very briefly, uh, which I was, I had so many credits, I would have had to sign the papers and, um, you know, commission uh, or agree to, to take on a commission. And I wasn't sure if it was the right time yet. And one of the things that I really appreciated in, in the leadership training that I got, even just doing it for so briefly, um, was this idea about backwards planning and trying to be, you know, thoughtful and intentional in, uh, how you plan to achieve your goals. And so when it came to my career, uh, you know, the, the army major asked me, you know, what do you think you want to do? And I said, well, you know, I've always thought maybe I would be in the foreign service or maybe I would be in intelligence and, you know, what's the path before that, the path before that, the path before that. I thought maybe I might want to go to law school, but I wasn't sure. Uh, but during all of this, I had actually gotten an internship opportunity in Washington, D.C., and it seemed like a great opportunity and it seemed like something that could, you know, help me get along on my path as I decided if Washington was really for me. So I did that and uh, did that internship. It was, you know, like a, a Hill internship and then um, went back to, to UCLA. Wasn't sure if I wanted to do that either. Actually, I think getting uh, getting on the plane in L.A. where it's 75 degrees and then getting off the plane at BWI where it was like 11 degrees and doing this internship from January through March and being in a basement apartment and never seeing the sun was maybe not the best way to get introduced to Washington, D.C. But uh, anyhow, so I um, 
kind of went on and, and went through UCLA and and went and worked at a big law firm after I graduated. And so there I wasn't sure if I wanted to do it and, and didn't. But I think to make a long story short, you don't always know what path you're going to take. And when I finally ended up in law school in Washington, D.C., I still didn't think I wanted to do finance. I actually thought I wanted to do health law, but I started to do internships. And one of the things that I've always liked about my career is to say yes, to take risks and to say yes, even if you don't know exactly what it's going to bring. And so with one thing and another, I did internships uh, at the CFTC uh, in enforcement, at the SEC in enforcement, at the OCC, which is the bank regulator, in enforcement and compliance. And then I thought I was all set with, with jobs after I graduated from law school, and then actually one of my supervisors uh, at the CFTC had been detailed to a commissioner's office. And so he said, how would you like to come and um, intern for commissioner? And Dodd-Frank had just been passed, and I thought I was going to be taking it easy, but how do you say no to an opportunity like that? And that's really what got me introduced to the CFTC. Um, I had a baby. I stayed home. I was at a think tank. I went back to work for my commissioner. And when he left, I went to Citigroup, which is where we met. And I, you know, climbed the ladder, uh, worked hard at Citigroup, made managing director. And then, you know, they came looking for me and asked me if I would be interested in being a commissioner and coming back and serving my country. So it's been a great honor. It's it's really remarkable to find myself here today. Awesome. What, a, what an incredible ride. And as a commissioner, you've really um, taken a leadership role in, in the crypto space. And would love to understand how you got into crypto in the first place. Like, bring us down. Tell us how you went through the rabbit hole. Yeah. So, again, it's not something that I was necessarily looking for. Uh, I was working for Commissioner Scott O'Malley, and this was in 2013. And the Bitcoin Foundation was actually making the rounds in Washington, trying to explain what Bitcoin was and, uh, you know, see how it was regulated, see if, you know, that's something that we might have jurisdiction over. So that's when I first really started to analyze Bitcoin. And I thought it was so interesting because it was something that was, seemed to be worth something, something that people could exchange for um, something else of value. But then it was interesting because it also seemed to be like a payment network. So I thought that the CFTC would have jurisdiction over it. Uh, and then I thought maybe, maybe there would be some touch points with the Fed, possibly if it really was some kind of payment network that banks could use, for example. So uh, it's been a really interesting experience to kind of see that, you know, look, almost 10 years later, people still think about, you know, Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency as a store of value or as a means of exchange. So it's interesting to see how some of the thinking that we had in the early days is, is still the thinking that holds true today. Uh, then I, you know, of course, I, as I said, I went to Citigroup and I was working on a lot of different things. And one of the things I always liked working on was emerging risks. So I actually started to cover crypto at City around 2016 or 2017. Uh, this is, of course, when um, uh, the exchanges were looking at listing the first Bitcoin futures. And so that was one aspect of it. But it's also when everybody started to you know, try to use their credit cards, for example, to fund um, their crypto accounts with different exchanges, crypto exchanges. And so it's been really great covering it since then, you know, not only from a compliance and risk perspective, but then also from working with product development teams, innovation teams, and uh, business teams, and understanding how uh, blockchain and digital assets can really transform the financial industry and financial services and products. Awesome. Awesome. If we could step back a little bit. Can you just tell us, what is the role of the CFTC? What does it do as a regulator? 
So the CFTC is a regulator over commodity derivatives and markets and commodity derivatives. Uh, but what that means is it's actually a bit broader than that. I mean, when you hear commodities, you might think about uh, hard inputs like lumber, oil, energy, um, or you might think of food like wheat, um, milk. Uh, you could think of all these financial products, actually, which is what I spent a lot of my time, interest rate swaps, credit, you know, default index swaps, that type of thing. So what it all boils down to is that the CFTC's jurisdiction is incredibly broad. So if you have any type of instrument, a derivative, uh, where the value is derived from something else, an underlying or reference asset, like gold, for example, um, that's something that the CFTC oversees. So when it comes to derivatives, whether they are uh, exchange traded and listed or they're over the counter, we have a comprehensive registration and uh, oversight uh, regulatory framework for that, where there's all different kinds of requirements for minimum financial resources, for risk management, for reporting, compliance programs, uh, customer protection, and so on. Uh, but then also over the spot market. So for example, you know the difference between uh, live hogs versus uh, pork belly futures. So over the spot markets, we have anti-fraud and anti-manipulation authority. And so we've brought a great number of cases, including recently a very large case for $1.18 billion against uh, oil market fraud. And you know, you, you talked about some other agencies out there in crypto land. There's a lot of um, confusion around the role of the SEC versus the role of the CFTC. Can, can you explain that to us? Yeah. So I think the simplest way for me to describe the jurisdictional divide here is really that the SEC regulates securities. But if something is not a security, then I think, you know, in the U.S. under our laws, then it's something that the CFTC most likely has regulatory touch points over. Got it. And so the SEC has this thing called the Howey test, uh, and they ascertain what, what a security is, and then everything else falls into your bucket. I guess there's two other exceptions, though, onions and then movie receipts, right? You can't... That's right. So two things that are not commodities, and that's in the statute, are onions. There must have been a really powerful onion lobby at some point in time. And right. then, although actually there was a huge crash in the onion market, and there was actually, I think, an Onion Futures Act that was passed. So it's a pretty significant market event. Uh, and then movie box office receipts. Um, did not want to have futures on movie box offices. Yeah, so I'm not sure what tokenized onions would be, but um, probably commodity. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that one. Um, so, so as commissioner, what is your role? What do you do at the agency? Tell us about your day to day. Yeah. So I think, um, when I think about my job, I feel that there are two really important functions. So one of them is to vote. We, the commissioners are the head of the agency. So the commission is the head of the agency. One of us is designated as chairman and has, uh, the, uh, chief administrative responsibilities to, um, oversee the staff and the operating divisions to set the agenda and to call for open meetings. But the otherwise, it, most, um, sorry, almost all agency action requires uh, a vote of the commissioners. And so that is going to be whether it's a rulemaking, like a proposed or final rule, or it is uh, an enforcement action or some type of uh, registration order. Those all require votes by the commission. So there's a great deal of work, research, and analysis that goes into how we vote on these important uh, agency actions. The other thing that I think is very important about my job is to go and to meet with people. I'm 
here. I am I am the government, and I think that it's very important that as the government, we have to be uh, open and transparent and accessible to the people. I find that a lot of people who have frustrations, it's because they feel like they don't have a voice or they feel like government is a black box and it's something that um, is frustrating. And so I think it's really important that I, I try to do what I can to engage with the public as much as possible and to make sure that people feel like they're heard. Oh, that's great. Thank you. All right. So I'm going to ask a pretty broad question right now. And really, I think this is something that a lot of folks are going to be very interested in. So I think you talked a little bit about the role that the CFTC today has in, in regulating crypto. Would love for you to explain that a little further. But then you know, take it a step further. What role should it have in regulating Web3? And, and are you like essentially the regulator of the metaverse? Is that is that how you think of it? And uh, we'd just love for you to unpack your, your views on regulation of the crypto space. So there are a number of crypto derivatives. So, for example, we mentioned Bitcoin futures. There's also Ether futures. And so for those um, futures contracts, just like any other futures contract, it's regulated the same way. So they have to meet the same standards. It's listed on a, on a derivatives uh, contract market. And um, if they're clear, then it's cleared through derivatives clearing organization and so on. So that is an important um aspect of, of crypto that we regulate, but we regulate it just the same as, as any other. And I also think that because we have a principles-based regulatory approach, what that means is that we're able to uh, be flexible in how we adapt and uh, anticipate new risks and new changes. And so I feel like we do have something that works and it is much faster to be able to stand up or to incorporate something that's new rather than having to go through something really extensive if we had like very specific prescriptive rules. So that's one thing. And then, like I mentioned before, we've got this anti-fraud and anti-manipulation authority over the spot markets. And so we've brought um, cases in the billions over like crypto Ponzi schemes, including ones that are uh, in the United States as well as outside the United States. And then when we think about regulating crypto more broadly, I think it's so important that there is a comprehensive and clear regulatory framework over crypto, because first of all, uh, we have to protect uh, customers and we have to protect market participants. We have to protect against market abuses and um, ensure that there's the right kind of market conduct uh, in place. But besides that and addressing you know, potential risks, I also think it's very important to have clear rules of the road so that way we can ensure that there is responsible growth in compliant digital asset markets and that there's um, not only uh, that it's responsible, but that it's fair. And so I think that's another reason why it's important that we set up the rules and we stand up the rules first and then people know, you know what target it is that they're trying to reach. I think it's very hard to build out um, robust risk management compliance programs if you're not sure uh, what the expectations are. And uh, it's something where, you know, maybe you're a new entrant and it's, it's not an area that you're familiar with, but you're trying to build out um, your business in a responsible way. So I think that is really important. And I think that's why taking a holistic approach to crypto financial activities, you know, across the board, whether it's banking or payments, whether it's uh, capital markets activities, whether it's uh, derivatives or some other type of activity is really important. Um, when I think about the crypto assets um, more generally, you know, I think you can bucket it into some of the things that I just uh, described. So there are some that are banking and payment products. There's others that are some kind of tokenized financial instrument. So if you look at the economics or you look at how it's structured, it, you know, it's a security, it's some kind of derivative. I think that's just about how it's structured. It's a financial instrument. And, you know, that's the approach that the Europeans have taken as well under 
uh, their markets and crypto assets regulation is that if it's a financial instrument, it should be under the same rules. There's other things that are tokenized uh, real assets. So you could think of real estate as an example of that, uh, or maybe a piece of art. And then I think there are other things that are tokenized that are things. So NFTs that are collectibles, I would think of that as a thing. And a thing is a commodity uh, under our our laws and our rules. And then I think there's other types of tokenized, um, uh, like digital rights, like tokenized digital rights. So the right to own something or to transfer something or to use something. I think that's very interesting. And I think you just sort of opens up this whole realm. And so when you think about the CFTC being a regulator over things and, and over digital rights, I think that's when you start looking at the metaverse and that being really interesting because indeed a lot of the um, utility of the metaverse that people are thinking about are, are probably some kind of tokenized digital right or, or a tokenized thing. And I, I think that's really something that regulators ought to get in front of so we can make sure that as people are building, that they're building towards an ethical, safe and inclusive metaverse. Yep. Um, I, I, the principles based approach certainly resonates with us, you know, working with founders every single day, um, the more that they have certainty, the more they can build without having to worry about falling afoul. So like everything you said absolutely resonated uh, with me. Um, you're, you've been spending a ton of time traveling the world. You know, we see you on Twitter, Singapore recently. I think you're, you're, you're in Europe before that. Um, how is the U.S. doing from a competitive perspective, like vis-a-vis -vis regulation? Are we out in front? Are we behind? Would love to know how, how, how you view the world right now. Yeah. So I've been doing learning tours. So that's something I've been doing with uh, not only uh, the industry and with service providers, but then also I've been going out and engaging with uh, my counterparts around the world. So with other policymakers like central banks, uh, like finance ministries and regulators. You know, one of the things that, you know, when you take on a new role at a big company is they send you out to go, you know, walk, walk the ground, to go talk to people, you know, kick the tires and get the lay of the land. I think that's really important. You really Sometimes there's no um, there's no substitute for just going out and seeing things with your own eyes and talking to people face to face. So that's what I've been doing. I've been going to each of our markets hubs. So, you know, London, Singapore, I'm going to be going to the Middle East next. That's kind of the last leg of my international tour. Uh, and then I've been across Europe and understanding, first of all, not only, you know, what global market structure is, but also when it comes to crypto and innovation, you know, what are other jurisdictions doing uh, that we can learn from? Because a lot of them have had some kind of regulatory uh, framework in place with registration and oversight since, you know, 2019, maybe a little bit earlier, maybe a little bit later. But so they've had years of experience working with uh, these types of firms, working with the crypto sector, working with fintech accelerators or with innovation labs or regulatory sandboxes. So I've asked them, what works and what doesn't. And I want to take those observations and learnings and take that back to inform me and in how I should approach crypto policy in the United States. So it's based on actual data points and um, on what I've learned from other regulators who've been doing this. So look, I'll be honest, the United States is behind. I don't think it's too late, but there are comprehensive regulatory frameworks. I've mentioned the EU. Um, there's other you know, countries that have put together frameworks like France. So and in Singapore, they've been very forward thinking about this and they've been doing uh, for years now, maybe since 2018, uh, different experiments with the private sector to truly understand the, the capability and the potential of blockchain technology. So all of these jurisdictions are very forward looking and I don't think any of them are uh, doing it by being um, 
lax or by not thinking about the risks. I think they're just taking a really informed and thoughtful approach towards understanding the technology, providing clear regulation and guidelines, and then you know ensuring that things are happening in a responsible way. Yeah. I think you're going to really enjoy your, your trip to the Middle East. I just returned from the UAE and I was really impressed with the regulatory approach there. I mean, sitting across the table, having really thoughtful conversations about how they can attract responsible innovation in their country. So I'm sure you're going to like it. So, so what do you think? The, so you're, good, you're, good, you're doing this travel. You're going to come back in your mind. What is the ideal policy outcome uh, for Web3 in the United States? And, you know, as opposed to like, what is the, 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 the wrong regulatory outcome in the United States as well? Yeah. So as I've been saying, I've, I've been working on a couple different policy proposals. So the first one that I rolled out was, you know, my 10 fundamentals for responsible digital asset markets, which I think is a first of its kind in the U.S. to come out with sort of a comprehensive framework specific for markets. So uh, that's one thing. Um, the other thing I've recently proposed is an office of the retail advocate. So the CFTC has had a long track record of retail protection. But, you know, when people talk about us getting potentially greater jurisdiction over spot markets um, with greater levels of retail activity, uh, if they want to see us come up with some additional ways to engage uh, with that, then I think an office of the retail advocate makes a lot of sense. Uh, besides that, when I think about what other, regu- uh, what other jurisdictions are doing in the regulatory space and what the U.S. could be doing, look, we have a whole framework around uh our financial system and financial regulation. And I think for the most part, it works. I think the missing piece is that we need to provide additional clarity, whether it's through guidance or new rules, we need to provide additional clarity as to how the existing framework or rules apply to some of these crypto products. And so that's where, look, you know, under the president's executive order on crypto assets, uh, there was a treasury report that had these recommendations that regulators need to use the tools that they have available, the existing authorities to fill that gap and provide that regulatory clarity through guidance or new rules. So Commissioner Pham, uh, you mentioned a little bit about this. Sometimes it feels though that there are times when technology outpaces law and regulation. You know, you said that, you know, you're going to try to apply existing regulatory principles, but do you ever feel like that's the case? You know, look, I think if you have the right mindset for it, there are definitely ways that you can um, interpret or apply your existing laws and regulations that make sense for technological advances. So I think the best way to think about this is the United States. We have some of our oldest telecommunication laws are based on, I think, the telegraph. And we've been able to take that law and interpret it and update it for the modern day age so that I think actually that law applies to the Internet. And I don't think at any point in time would you have been able to even conceive of the internet when we were all using telegraphs. But I think that's another way that you can take a regulatory uh, framework, you can take a law and you can adapt it for the modern age, but you have to do the work. You need to think about how do you interpret some of these provisions in a more modern way so that when people were thinking about information passing through uh, telegraph wires, uh, now you can think about information sort of passing through the internet. Right. So that's a way that they were able to analogize to it. So it's the, it's the same way. I think you have to. Uh, and the other thing that's really important is to truly understand the technology. I always say, how can regulators regulate something if they don't understand it? That's why I spend so much of my time getting out there and meeting with people who are actually in the space, who are building businesses, who are serving clients and customers and who are uh, 
engaging in these types of you know research and development and technological innovations because it's just the same like when I was a compliance officer. I needed to really understand uh, not only the systems but also some of the operational processes in order to have the right policies in place uh, that would uh, ensure compliance and that would mitigate any potential risks. So I think regulators need to be informed and I think they need to engage and I think we need to always be learning and also thinking ahead so we can try to future-proof our regulations. But again, that's why I generally uh, think that a principles-based regulation is able to innovate um, more quickly than something that is rules-based that is very prescriptive, because then you have to go through a whole uh, rulemaking process just to change, you know, a word or two in a line uh, that might have, you know, some implications uh, where it's uh, challenging to be able to modernize it. So one of those new innovations of Web3 are something we call decentralized autonomous organizations or DAOs. How do you think regulation should apply to, to DAOs? So this is an area that's really rapidly emerging. There's a lot of discussion and debate on this. So I, I think I don't want to prejudge anything. I'm not sure that I want to jump into um, this yet, but I think that it's really important that we have these forums where we can engage with the public and where people who have used DAOs, who constitute DAOs, who understand the benefits of having a DAO, can come and talk to the agency in an open way, engage, explain the, the benefits, the pros, the cons, also explain how it works. And then we can look at it through our uh, different you know, legal or regulatory lenses and understand you know, what are the public policy objectives that we have here? What are the actual harms it is that we're trying to, to go after? Because I really don't think if you're you know, somebody's, somebody's kid who has a single governance token uh, and maybe you voted once or twice, I'm not sure that that is something where there's a harm that you know the government's going to come after you. So I think we really need to be thoughtful in how we approach some of these new and innovative areas. Awesome. Thank you for that. Okay. So there are many veterans in our community that are founders and entrepreneurs. They're building right now in Web3. I've interviewed a bunch of them. What advice would you give them? Oh, um, advice life advice like no, uh, uh, oh, I'm sure they'll take that as well but you know in the context of of emerging regulation if you're a builder in this space like what, what should you be aware of what you should you be watching you know how do you make sure you don't cross you know into the black uh if, if you know vis-a-vis -vis the cftc just any advice you, you, you provide them as they navigate the regulatory uncertainties of the space so I can't provide any advice, but maybe what I'll do is I'll talk about my own experiences, having been in the private sector and having to keep an eye on emerging risks, emerging issues, um, you know, advocating on uh, new regulations or, or change regulations. So first of all, it's really important to make sure that you are um, staying on top of the information flow. So make sure that you're paying attention to what the policy discussion is, what different regulators are saying. Uh, sometimes you need to read between the lines, but regulators will give you a lot of clues. Uh, when they make public statements, and you can actually infer quite a quite a lot from that. Um, there's also different ways to engage with the regulators, and I think that's so important. So it's really, you know, regulators don't like surprises, and uh, regulators also don't like it when it seems that people are trying to um, be evasive. And so I think having a healthy, productive conversation that's proactive and educational with the regulator is really important. Now, I understand that that's not always so easy because, unfortunately, there are some regulators that take more of a gotcha approach. So this is something that, you know, it depends on the regulator and, and the best way to engage. But I, I really feel like there ought to be a way to have that open engagement and dialogue. Uh, if you're already regulated, then you really should be proactive about um, 
identifying and assessing any issues that you might have. And if those issues are something that you need to self-report to your regulator, then you should do that. You should make sure that you have the right governance processes in place around that. And, you know, at the end of the day, regulators want to ensure that there are responsible actors uh, in their in their markets or in their space and that they're trying to do the right thing. And of course, we want to make sure that uh, in many ways, this is all about just the basics. Like if you're lying, cheating or stealing, and if you're not being responsible, then that's something where regulators are going to come down on you. But if you're trying to do everything right, for the most part, you should be okay. Don't lie, cheat or steal. Um, yeah, that's something that we learned a little bit about in the academy back in the day. Um, but I think they're, they're really wise words to live by for sure. So look, a, a lot of our listeners are looking to for career transition and one place where they could find employment is the CFTC. Um, is the CFTC hiring? And, and, and if people are interested, how do they apply? Yeah, so the CFTC does have some open positions. Um, a lot of times it's because we have attrition. Sometimes we do have new postings. And I think like most of the federal government, all of our jobs are on usajobs.gov or maybe .com, I'm not sure, but it is USA Jobs. And so they're all there. Um, there is a veteran's preference, of course, and so I really do encourage for anybody who's interested in having a career at the CFTC and in joining this organization that you definitely apply. We also have a great veterans affinity group, and we actually just had one of our um, programs for uh, Veterans Day today at the commission, and so I think it's really a place where all veterans should feel very welcome. Uh, that's pretty awesome. So uh, for people looking to get in touch with you, what's the best way to connect? Ah, so... I am very accessible. I am on Twitter at Caroline D. Pham. That's also my Instagram handle. I am on LinkedIn. And I have an official Twitter for my CFTC account, which is at CFTC Pham. And then my email address for my office is Commissioner Pham, all one word, at CFTC.gov. That's awesome. And I wanted to thank you for being so accessible and engaging. Um, love the way that you communicate with, with the community. And uh, it, it's very apparent to me that you're you're really trying to get our regulation to the right place. So thanks again for coming on. Any last words, Commissioner? Oh, I just wanted to thank you for that. You know, all of us are trying to, to serve the best way that we can. We're trying to do our jobs. And, you know, that's how I think about it. Like, I'm here to serve the public. That's my job. And so I want to, to be here for all of you. Thank you. Hey, thanks again, Commissioner Fan, for coming on today. Incredibly informative discussion. We're, we're so lucky to have a prominent supporter like you on, on our show today. And I also want to thank our sponsor, Luca, and also uh, plug our friends at Bunker Labs, uh, who have been providing a lot of support for us from a 501c3 perspective. Thanks again, Commissioner. Thanks. Bye. And again, I also wanted to thank our sponsor, Luca, uh, for doing what you do, and, and we're deeply appreciative of your support. For those interested in learning more about Vita, please connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Please pick me on Twitter at PerkinsCR97. Thank you so much, everyone. See you next time.